Well, welcome HBC. As the pastors and worship team have no doubt said, we are glad that you can join us with us join with us online as we make our way through the last chapter of the book of Lamentations. This is our fourth and final sermon in this brief series through this important, often neglected, but precious book of God's word. Henry Martin was a missionary to India and Persia, and he died in a plague similar to the coronavirus, and he was only 31 years old on October 16th, 1812. And, but he wrote in his journal about eight months before his death in January of 1812 the following, to all, appearance, to all appearance, the present year will be more perilous than any I have seen. But if I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. This has often been paraphrased, we are immortal till Christ's work is done with us. This is profoundly true, and it rests squarely on the reality that life and death are in the hands of our sovereign God. Indeed, the entire cause of Christ and of the church is in his hand. Seven years earlier, Henry Martin, at age 24, wrote the following. Were God not the sovereign of the universe how miserable I should be. But the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. And Christ's cause shall prevail, O my soul, be happy in the prospect. See, brothers and sisters, God's sovereignty has always been a comfort to God's people. The sovereign Lord, a title that God himself gives himself, has been a comfort to his church down through the ages. The knowledge that God is sovereign, that God is in total control. That if we are, quote, in the soup, then it is he who has decided what sort of soup we're in. <laughs> this was the comfort of Henry Martin, and it's the comfort of us today. He, he is a God who is truly God. Sovereign at all times, in all places, over all forces, in all circumstances. He's the God of all grace, who hears our cries of distress, knows our sorrows, and reigns over them for our good. It's that knowledge and that comfort that we ultimately find in Lamentations chapter 5 this morning. As we've explored the theme of lament the last three weeks, we've looked at various stages. Ultimately, we're learning how to lament, and we've considered how, how to lament through the book of Lamentations. We've looked at Three different aspects so far. We're going to look at the fourth and final one today. The first aspect was crying out to the Lord in our grief and in our pain. The second aspect involved complaining with God in a righteous and holy way about our circumstances and how from our perspective they don't align with his purposes and promises. The third aspect involved calling on the name of the Lord to intervene and work on our behalf. And this morning, we're going to come to the final stage, which is confessing. Now, I'm not talking about confessing sin. I think that's involved in crying out and complaining. What I'm talking about is confessing truth about who God is to ourselves and to our souls. 
See, lament always concludes with us confessing the worthiness of God to be trusted and a recommitment to praising him no matter what he does. We refuse to relinquish hope even in our darkest moments, but that doesn't mean that hope comes easy. And so confessing becomes all the more important. So this morning we're going to consider the heart-steadying truth of God's sovereignty from Lamentations chapter 5 under three points. Here's the first one. The difficulty with hope. The difficulty with hope. The first 18 verses of this chapter provide numerous obstacles and barriers to hope. (laughs) In case you haven't noticed, hope doesn't come easy and hope is not automatic. It's often working through a difficult experience that has to get us to hope eventually. So I want you to consider with me, we're going to just kind of survey these first 18 verses and see some of the barriers and obstacles that the people of Israel in these days under Babylonian exile had to hope. First of all, in verse 2, they were invaded. We've talked about that a number of times in in these chapters and sermons together. We've considered what Babylon did in taking over the people of Israel as a, as a sign of God's judgment on them for their sin. In verse 2, we read, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. You know, it's one thing to give your inheritance away to people you love. <laughs> it's one thing to give your home and your property away to someone you love. It's another thing altogether to have it taken away by your enemies. <laughs> I mean, this is what the people of Israel saw. They saw... God's people, God's inheritance, all the things that God had provided for them, taken away. These things were supposed to be for their children and their children's children. But as a result of their sin, it had been turned over to strangers and to foreigners. They felt abandoned. Look at verse 3. We have become orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. They were impoverished. Verse 4. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. They were exhausted, verse 5. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. They're dependent, verse 6. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Verse 7, they were disciplined. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. They were conquered, verse 8. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from the hand. When when you're being ruled over by a slave, you're done, (laughs) You have no power and no influence whatsoever because the lowest rung of society is ruling over you. Verse 9, they have been endangered. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Verse 10, they're sick. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Verse 11, they're uh, assaulted. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Verse 12, they're dishonored. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Verse 13, they're oppressed. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. Verse 14 and 15, they've become embittered. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. Verse 16, they're ashamed. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Verse 17, they are grieved. For this our heart has become sick, and for these things our eyes have grown dim. And then finally, verse 18, they're devastated. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. Invaded, 
abandoned, impoverished, exhausted, dependent, disciplined, conquered, endangered, sick, assaulted, dishonored, oppressed, embittered, ashamed, grieved, and devastated. That'd be some obstacles to hope. (laughs) I mean, just one of those alone would cause us, some of us, to say, okay, Christianity, I'm done with it. I'm done with this faith and trusting God thing. And yet, there's a list of 18 things there that they are all facing. There are so many obstacles to them having any hope. And what do they do? But what do they do? Look at verse 1. Remember us, O Lord. Remember us, O Lord. They turn to God. In the face of all these obstacles to hope, they call to God and hope in Him. Brother and sister... What's our excuse? What's our excuse for not going to God? When the marriage gets worse, when the kids rebel, when the finances get tight, when the job gets difficult, when the friendship goes south, when the spouse dies, when the infertility continues, when the loneliness paralyzes, when the depression won't give up, when the darkness won't lift, when the prodigal won't come home, when the surgeries won't stop, when the health problems increase, and the prospect of a better future declines, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. See, obstacles to hope are not new for God's children. We have them, they had them. And it's in seeing all that was against them If anyone had a reason just to say, I'm done, you don't understand all that I've gone through, I'm hopeless, we're hopeless. If anyone had a reason to feel that way, it was the people of Israel under Babylonian exile. And yet, still, they said, remember us, O Lord, remember us, O Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, if they, at their worst, can cry out to God, then we, in so many difficult but lesser struggles. And by lesser, I don't mean to say that those aren't heavy burdens that we bear, but in light of 18 significant obstacles that we see them face, and our maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 18, nonetheless, we can still hope in the Lord. So I want you to see the difficulty that, that, was, that was against them to hope and yet their resilience and their resolve to hope anyway. That's, first of all, the difficulty with hope. Second point, the content of hope. We could also say the object of hope. But what's the content? What's the reason that they hope? Verse 19, one verse. Would you look at it with me? But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. The sovereignty of God is the content of their hope. The fact that God reigns forever. So, what are the reasons that we have for continuing to hope? One reason, God reigns. That's it. That's it. That's every day of our lives. That's all we need. That's really all you need. If, 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 if you feel like all hell has been released to assault your life, 
you know that God reigns. <laughs> the Lord reigns. That's all. Now, God gives us so much more than that. But if that's all he gave us, that's enough. While Babylon may have been the means of God's discipline for Israel, it was God who was behind it. The reason we hope is because God is on his throne. God is supreme over all things, including all the pain that comes into our life. There is a center of the universe, and it is not us, and it is not our happiness. It's God. What we believe about God's sovereignty is in suffering is critical. Jeremiah believed it. That's why he wrote it. That's why he recorded it here. I want you to see that this has been in Jeremiah's bones all throughout his ministry. He faced some pretty discouraging ministry. Nobody wants Jeremiah's call. <laughs> if, if, if Jeremiah were sitting in a seminary class and he got this assignment, this pastorate, this responsibility, nobody wants it. And yet the reason he was able to embrace it and live in it and prosper under it, even with great difficulty, was because he believed that the Lord reigned. So hold your finger in Lamentations 5. Let's go back one book to the book of Jeremiah. And I just want to show you a couple passages in Jeremiah to show you that this, this, the sovereignty of God was deeply rooted in him as a prophet. Jeremiah chapter 1. We'll just start right at the beginning of the book. And notice, this was in Jeremiah because God put it there. We're going to look at the call of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. Look at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's a sovereign God right there. God who says, Before you were even made, I knew you. And before you were even consecrated to be a prophet, I had appointed it to be so. See, this sovereign Lord had chosen Jeremiah for this assignment. And though he brought a protest or a complaint, similar to what Moses did in his call in verse 6, God responds in verse 7, but the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth, for to you, to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the ultimate hope is that God is the one on the throne decreeing this, designing this, fulfilling his promises to Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah chapter 18. Significantly down the road in his life and ministry, this conviction hasn't left him. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. See, it hadn't left him. He knew that not only was he in God's hand, but that Israel was in God's hand as well, just as, the, just as the pot is in the hand of the potter. One more verse, Jeremiah 32. Near the end of his ministry, we read in Jeremiah 32, 
verses 27 and 28. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Notice, what what does Jeremiah say is behind this exile? God. You know, we... We, often, we will often quote that verse to ourselves in times of comfort, right? The Lord is God. Is anything too hard for him? <laughs> you know what he's talking about there? Is anything too hard for him like marshalling a rebel army to subjugate his people? <laughs> That's what he's talking about. What, it, is anything too hard for the Lord? Okay, let me give you an example of what might be hard for the Lord. Say he takes a rebel army and he uses them to bring his people captive and into exile. Does that sound like it'd be hard for a person to do? Yeah, it'd be hard for a person to do. It'd be hard for a king to do, but it's not hard for the Lord to do. The Lord designed it and decreed it. And so you see how this was in Jeremiah all throughout his ministry, from the time he was conceived to the time he was called into ministry, even down to the end when he was announcing the exile. We also see this at the, book, at the beginning of the book of Job. You don't have to turn there, but... You all know the story well. Job suffers four terrible tragedies before losing his health. And two of the four tragedies we might call today natural disasters. And the other two would perhaps come under the label of terrorism. But one of the deepest questions in the book of Job is who caused these terrible sufferings to fall on Job? Well, there's one clear answer that's given throughout the book of Job. It's both given to Job and assumed by Job, by his three so-called comforters and by the divinely inspired storyteller. And this answer is given crisply and succinctly at the end of the book when the narrator describes how Job's families and friends responded. Job 42, verse 11. Job's family and friends comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. See, the Lord, the covenant God, is the one who brought these sufferings upon Job. He did not simply allow them. He caused them to come upon Job. Job shows that he knows this is true when he says in Job 121, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He reiterates this conviction when he says to his wife in Job chapter one verse, or chapter 2, verse 10, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Implication, from God. In saying this, the inspired narrator indicates, Job chapter 1, verse 22, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job did not sin with his lips. See, Job believed that God was ultimately behind it, and he was right to believe that. But under and alongside this shared conviction of the active sovereignty of God, there is an important subsidiary conviction. Satan causes Job's sufferings. See, we could say here, who was responsible for the sufferings of the people of Israel? Babylon. Just like we can say in the book of Job, who's responsible for the sufferings of the people of Israel, or the suffering of Job? Satan. But the parallel accounts of David's census demonstrate this same parallelism of views. You remember this? This is one of the most helpful parallels in all of Scripture. Who motivated David to call the census? Well, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, that the Lord did. 
But we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, that Satan did. <laughs> Say, there's a contradiction in the Bible. See, I knew it. I found one. There it is. Chronicles said that Satan did it, and 2 Samuel says the Lord did it. Well, who's right? Well, the Bible and the book of Job and the book of Lamentations hold these things together. Satan is God's strange servant to do the will of God by afflicting Job in his suffering. And no doubt Satan was in some ways probably involved in this Babylonian attack. Satan wanted nothing more than to snuff out the people of Israel and to stop the promise from going forward. Now, it's not explicitly said in the book of Lamentations, any role attributed to Satan. But any time God's people are under threat, Satan's at least pumped up about it, even if he's not directly involved in it. But nevertheless, what's happening here is just like the book of Job with Satan being under God's sovereign control, so Babylon is under God's sovereign control and will only accomplish what God himself permits and wants to accomplish. Satan does this out of malice. Babylon does it out of greed. But the Lord is doing it out of loving concern for his people and his glory. Always. This is why Luther can so vividly and in his own inimitable, say, inimitable way always refer to Satan as God's Satan. <laughs> because he's always under the control, sovereign control of God. And we see this most clearly and vividly and forcefully in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 and 24 this Jesus, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So who's responsible for the crucifixion? Well, the people that Peter is condemning in his sermon saying you crucified and killed them. And yet, he also holds God responsible because Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So here's my point, brothers and sisters. Why, why, why spend time thinking about that? Why spend time thinking about Job and Jesus and Babylon and how they were instruments to bring about this devastation? Here's why. If God can take the most unjust moments in human history and bring redemption out of it. Can he not do something much less significant in our suffering? If he reigned there, he reigns here. <laughs> That's my point. Brother, brothers and sisters, if he reigned there, he reigns over your life. He reigns there where you sit this morning right now with all the circumstances and challenges and difficulties that are surrounding your life. God reigns there too because he reigned here too and he reigned there too. He hasn't changed. The ultimate reason for our hope, the ultimate content and object of our hope is that we have a God who is in sovereign control. That's our hope. And that's what we see in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Not necessarily the king of Israel's throne, but God's throne endures. Number three, and finally, the resolve to hope. The resolve to hope. So in light of, and I want you to see the prog progression here. In light of the difficulty that we surveyed at the first 18 verses of this chapter, 
and in light of the content that God reigns over it, what's the logical conclusion? Well, we got we got to hope. we got to resolve to hope. Why do I say resolve to hope? Because hope's not automatic. It's a choice. Hope's a choice. Hope requires an action of a Holy Spirit-empowered will. It's a choice. I'm choosing to hope in spite of the hopelessness. That's faith. That's faith. That's the definition of faith. That's how we manifest that we truly believe in the Lord. Where the questions remain, the tears are still falling, nevertheless, I will hope. Look at their resolve to hope in the last three verses. Verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? There's a lament. But look at verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. See, there's an authentic cry and a resolve to hope in the Lord. Lord, restore us to yourself and we'll be restored. Renew us. Transform us. And then the, the, then the, then the, then the book just closes. That's where it closes. No, no verse 23 that says, And the Lord heard their cry and delivered them out of all their troubles. That will come. But right here, it's just ending with the resolve to hope. And that's where the Lord wants you to be. Don't have to have any answers, God. Don't have to know when. Don't have to know how it's coming. Don't have to know what you're going to do before I hope in you. You tell me what you're going to do, and then I'll hope. I'll decide whether it's worth hoping in. Don't, God doesn't play games like that. He's worthy of being hoped in regardless of what he's going to do. And that's what they do. They just say, look, restore us to yourself. We don't know what that's going to look like. Renew us. We don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know how long it's going to take. But we're hoping in you. See, the end of Lamentations reflects the path of hardship. We believe while we're still in the dark. Lament leads us through sorrow to trust even when we can't see the future. So in a way, the uncertain nature at the end of Lamentations is refreshing. It shows us how to trust when the immediate future remains uncertain and hard. We don't know what's going to happen in the next day, hour. I could drop dead in the next five minutes in the sermon. I don't know what's going to happen. None of us know what's going to happen. We make our plans with open hands and we trust the Lord and we move forward. Right? We don't know what's going to happen with COVID-19 or what's, what other particular things might happen in the next months or days or weeks ahead. But we resolve to trust the Lord because we know that through suffering, God has purposes in it. God has purposes. We've, we, we, we reviewed several of them throughout the last several weeks, remember? That through suffering, God exposes our sin and he calls us to soul-saving repentance. That through affliction, he drives us from the dangers of trusting in ourselves back to trusting in the safety of him. Through pain, he works in us hope and holiness and endurance. As our pastor said, he breaks off the rough edges and shaves off the rough edges of our lives. He makes the hands of his comfort in the, he makes us the hands of his comfort in the lives of others so that we would comfort with the comfort that we've received from God. He emboldens fellow believers. 
He embodies the gospel to unbelievers through suffering. He uses distress and persecution to reposition his troops like we see in the book of Acts. And he makes our suffering into his instruments to wean us from the cheap, empty thrills of the world to keep us from pride and to woo us to the surpassing value and preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could look at many texts. We don't have time to to support those ideas. But they're all throughout the New Testament that God has deep and abiding purposes for our suffering under his sovereign control. But I want to ask this question in light of, and this is where we're going to wrap things up over the next few minutes. I just want to conclude with this thought. Sometimes we think that God is accomplishing good and that his, his purposes are confined to doing us good in this life only. Like, if it doesn't, if there's not a purpose that I can see for what's happening in my life now, then it must not be a good purpose. In other words, what about the sufferings that produce no good on earth in the life of those who are suffering? What about those? Because that's kind of what's going on here in Lamentations. Many, many of them are not going to live to see any of the good that God has coming. Moses didn't get to. He, he died before ever getting to lead the people into the, into the promised land, what he had labored for on their behalf. He, and you could, he, could, he could have looked back and said, what good was that? I put up with all that. I did all that. I, I, I kept hoping. I didn't abandon the mission. I kept leading. And now, because I struck a rock, I'm not allowed to go in? You've forgiven me for a lot less than that along the way. I mean, he could have been so embittered and so, but he didn't. Because he knew that God's purposes weren't confined to what he could experience in this life. So I want us to, I want to direct us to two precious biblical promises, one from Jesus and one from the Apostle Paul that affirmed that the good that God does in suffering is not limited to good in this life. First of all, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus strengthens a persecuted church, not only for enduring, but for rejoicing when others revile them and persecute them and utter all kinds of evil against them falsely on my account. Now, how does he encourage them in that? Rejoice and be glad for they will eventually stop persecuting you. (laughs) No. Rejoice and be glad. Your death will be very short at the end of their spear. No, he says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. See, he doesn't confine God's blessing and the goodness that he might bring into our lives to what he gives us in this life. He says, no, The reason you should rejoice when other people revile you, the reason you should rejoice when other people persecute you, and the reason you should rejoice when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account is because your reward is great in heaven. Now, think about what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Literally, our sufferings in this age are not worthy of the glory that is coming to us in the age to come. It says, with all the sufferings that we endure in this life, when we consider the glory 
of the age to come, they're not even worth being compared in the same sentence. Now, what Matthew 5 and what Romans 8 don't make explicit is the nature of the relationship between those things. Between our present pain and our coming reward. Like, that link is not made. Jesus just says, look, rejoice, your reward's great. Paul says, rejoice because the suffering now is not worth being compared to the glory. But, 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 but how does it work together? Well, that's where 2 Corinthians 4.17 comes in. Especially in the midst of suffering that doesn't seem to produce any good in this life. 2 Corinthians 4.17, we considered it, I think, last week in our sermon, but I want to spend just a little bit more time on it today. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the link I want you to get. So, let's spend some time meditating on this verse. First, note how gloriously understated the English language is in this phrase. This is where a little knowledge of Greek, which I have, very little, uh, but I can use a good, good, some good software. And uh, this is where Greek actually helps. So the, the, the English phrase in the ESV is beyond all comparison. Weight of glory beyond all comparison. But beyond all comparison, translate the, translate the Greek phrase according to an extraordinary degree. But not only is this eternal weight of glory which awaits us in Christ glory to an extraordinary degree, but it's glory squared to an extraordinary degree. We might say it's Paul's own way of saying to infinity and beyond. <laughs> Taking the words of Buzz Lightyear into his own mouth. To infinity and beyond. It's, it's so enormous, I can't even express it. The closest expression that we get to this phrase in 2 Corinthians 4.17 is the familiar phrase that you know from Ephesians 2.7. Right, We all know Ephesians 2 well. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And then in verse 7 he says, In the coming ages God will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, Paul can't help but just pile up the earthly language to try his best to give us a foretaste of heaven's glory. Not just riches, but immeasurable riches. And not just grace, but grace in kindness. The coming glory will be in an extraordinary degree to infinity and beyond with grace and kindness lavished according to the immeasurable riches of God's kindness to an extraordinary and infinite beyond comprehension measure. That's kind of what he's talking about. See, we just, we can't, we can't, we can't fathom it. And the fact is, is that our suffering is producing that. It's producing it. It's helping heap up the experience of glory. See, what God is doing in Lamentations is not just robbing his people. He's preparing his people. He's not just taking stuff away from them because he's like a, a father that doesn't want his kids to have any fun. No, what he's doing for them is stripping them of disciplining them of, of calling them to repentance, of working in them, so that he can bless them to an immeasurable degree. And brothers and sisters, it's the same with our suffering. With any and all suffering that we're caused to embrace in this life, whether it's physical suffering, or spiritual suffering, or 
economic hardship or financial difficulty or job stress or family trial or whatever. It's, it's all preparing for us something in God's kindness to be an immeasurably rich, extraordinarily huge, beyond comparison reward. So what's included? What's included in that coming glory? Well, we don't know the half of all of it, but even a sketch of it, the Bible gives us, and I want to conclude with. First, here's part of what's coming. You are going to see Christ with your own eyes. With your eyes, you will see the risen, glorified, exalted Jesus Christ. And as if that, if that weren't enough, you're going to be like him. 1 John 3, 2. When we see him, we shall be like him. What does that mean? That means with glorified bodies, inhabiting the bliss of such glory that Jesus can only compare it in Matthew 13, 43 to shining like the sun. We will eat and drink and move our bodies and taste a new fullness of joy we have never experienced in a new world that's specifically designed for our joy as our eternal playground to the glory of God and the satisfaction of our glorified bodies and souls like never before. We will hear from the God of the universe, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, how I want to hear those words. I just want to hear those words from God. That's it. That's enough. But not only that, but we're going to share as a fellow heir with his son in all the world and all of its wealth. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. In other words, everything that God has, he's given to Christ, and everything that Christ has, he's given to you. <laughs> We're going to get everything that God wants to give Christ as fellow heirs in him. Unbelievable. What does that include? Well, we're going to judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. And in fact, wonder of wonders, Revelation three twenty one says that we're going to sit with Jesus on his throne. That would make any sense to me. And then it says that Jesus is going to dress himself for service. And he will serve us. And God himself will rejoice over us with gladness. He will quiet us with his love. And he's going to exalt, exalt over us with loud singing. It, it, it almost sounds idolatrous. <laughs> if it weren't in the Bible. <laughs> That God, we think of heaven is just going to be a time where we are gathering to celebrate what God has done. And believe me, that is there. And that is the main theme throughout all the ages. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, and by his blood we've been ransomed. He is the center of all of Emmanuel's land, no doubt. But Jesus wants us to know that he loves us, and he's really glad we're there. And he's planning to share everything he enjoys with us, with his people. 
He didn't just die for us, leave heaven, come to earth, and die for us so that he can have a bunch of servants throughout all eternity who were bought with his blood. He bought us to make us sons and daughters to the living God that we would reign with him. That's what he wants. He wants friendship for all eternity. He wants fellowship for all eternity. He wants mutual camaraderie. He wants what God intended in the beginning as we walked in the garden with him. When we were co-rulers, God being the ultimate creator and us being his vice regent, serving and exercising dominion over the earth. That's God's plan. That's what God will have. And God will be thrilled with it, rejoice in it, and sing over it. Now, how is it that our present sufferings relate to this coming glory? Well, this is the unique contribution of 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul says that our affliction in this age is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's preparing, it's working, it's producing. So, Romans 5.3, just as suffering produces endurance, and James 1.3, just as the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, so also affliction in this life, endured in faith, produces this incomparable, immeasurable, inexhaustible weight of glory. Which means that in those moments when we are suffering, we do have something good to preach to ourselves. We do have a reason to hope. And not something marginally good, but something magnificently good. Far more than we can ever imagine. So dear brother and sister in Christ, know this. Your afflictions are never wasted. Your pain is never in vain. Empty as our sufferings seem to us in this world, they are working. They are producing for us glory in the life to come. And the glory in the life to come will be so great that not even the Apostle Paul can grab enough human language to do it justice. As John Piper declares on the basis of 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says the following, There are special glories in the age to come brought about by your particular afflictions. Which means that every moment of your affliction is meaningful. Everything that our brother Wesley Carrick is enduring is meaningful. As hard as it is for us to understand that, it's meaningful. It's producing eternal glory. He's going to be so glorified from his suffering, we won't, probably won't even recognize him in the age to come. Because God is, over the course of his, you know, this young man's life, in his just late 20s, taken so much from him. And he will all, the Lord Jesus will always, always repay it. Everything that he demands from his obedient children. Which means that every moment of our affliction is meaningful. It has meaning. It's, it's doing something. It's causing something. It's not just sitting there. It's not empty. It's not vain. It's bringing about something glorious. We can't see it. But the world can't see it. The world looks at us and says, oh, that's, a, that's it's so sad what that brother, that sister, that Christian is going through. I wish it were so much better for them. But from God's perspective, it's doing something immeasurably incredible. See, when we say, I can't see anything good from coming out of this, and that's what you feel, it's because you're focusing on what you can see and understand and not on what God has declared. And Paul would say, look to the things that are unseen. 
the promise of God. Nothing in your pain is meaningless. It's all preparing. It's all working something. It's all producing something. It's a weight of glory, a special glory for you, just for you because of that pain. And these twin glorious truths are the grounds to not lose heart, which is precisely what Paul says in the verse immediately preceding 2 Corinthians 4.17. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day which doesn't mean that we pretend that our afflictions are not afflictions. Trouble is trouble, pain is pain, hurt is hurt. But we bring eternity into view, and that just because we bring eternity in our view doesn't mean our our sufferings themselves are any less painful, but what it does is it steadies our souls to rightly magnify and appropriate the pain. So in light of eternity and the stunning, indescribable magnitude of the glory to come, we don't lose heart. In view of eternity's duration, our pains are but momentary. In view of heaven's glorious weight, our afflictions are light. In view of the coming joy, our pains will one day prove to have been almost insignificant, except in that they work for us the eternal glory that we are now enjoying and increasing in forever. So Lamentations ends with an in-the-midst suffering resolved to hope. And in these three verses, we are taught the essence of lament. We're given a language for our loss, a solution to silence, a framework for feeling, a category for complaints, a process for pain, and a way to worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of meditating this morning on the immeasurable greatness of your purposes for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us. We believe, help our unbelief. Help us in the midst of our light and momentary afflictions to consider the eternal weight of glory that is being produced in them and through them. Lord, all of us have different afflictions. All of us have different struggles, different trials. But Lord, we know that your purpose in all of them is for glory, glory for us, enjoyment of glory, future heavenly reward, which will be be beyond all comparison to infinity and beyond. We pray this and praise you for it in the name of our risen, conquering Savior who makes each and every one of these sufferings turn to glory because his suffering turned to glory. Amen.